from MPB Think Radio, it's the original Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, your host, and we're looking for your calls today because we're live on Wednesday and recorded on Sundays. Boy, uh, there's lots to talk about, and we'll talk about anything you want to talk about. But it's Heart Week, and so we, we want to talk a little bit about that as well. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or send us an email at southernremedy at mpbonline.org. All of our lines are open. We're waiting for your call. one mpb ring all things considered. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Senate Judiciary Committee has advanced the nomination of Alabama Republican Senator Jeff Sessions to serve as U.S. Attorney General in the Trump administration. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports he was approved in a party-line vote of 11 to 9. The vote followed hours of debate about Sessions' record on civil rights and his closeness to the Trump White House. As lawmakers voted, a female protester cried out that Sessions would not protect the vulnerable. Police removed her from the hearing room. Sessions still requires a vote by the full Senate before he can run the Justice Department. The vote comes just days after President Trump fired acting Attorney General Sally Yates, a holdover from the Obama administration, for refusing to enforce his order on immigration. NPR's Carrie Johnson. President Trump's nominee to lead the Department of Veterans Affairs, Dr. David Shulkin, has his nomination hearing this afternoon. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. If confirmed, Shulkin will be the first non-veteran to lead the VA. But that's about the only controversial thing about his nomination. Shulkin has run the Veterans Health Administration since 2015 and is a familiar face on Capitol Hill. Before joining the VA, he spent decades as a physician and ran large health networks like the Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City. Proponents of the VA's state-run health care are hoping Shulkin will continue to reform a system they see as chronically underfunded. Critics of VA want to get Shulkin on the record as supporting President Trump's plan to increase the use of private care for veterans. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. The full Senate is expected to approve Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State today. This morning, the Senate Finance Committee voted to approve Steve Mnuchin as Treasury Secretary and Tom Price as Secretary of Health and Human Services. They both need full Senate approval. UNICEF is appealing for $3.3 billion to provide humanitarian assistance for 81 million people in 48 countries. Lisa Schlein reports the largest humanitarian operation is in Syria. UNICEF is asking for $1.4 billion to help 17 million children and families living inside conflict-ridden Syria and as refugees in five neighboring countries. UNICEF Emergency Chief Manuel Fontaine calls Syria the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Particular concern is the situation of about 400,000 children who are actually in besieged areas as we speak right now, uh, as you can imagine the, the conditions in which they are at the moment and the whole difficulty of access. Other major operations include Yemen, Iraq, South Sudan and northeast Nigeria, which is struggling to overcome the disastrous impact of the Boko Haram insurgency. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Schlein in Geneva. On Wall Street, the Dow was up three points, the Nasdaq Composite up 13. This is NPR News in Washington. 
Volkswagen has agreed to pay nearly $1.3 billion to settle claims from American owners of its vehicles with larger diesel engines. The proposed settlement covers some 75,000 VW, Audi and Porsche vehicles. The German automaker admitted that it installed software to evade emissions controls. Plans are underway for Amazon to build a massive air cargo hub in northern Kentucky. And Thompson from member station WVXU reports the company says Amazon Primer is promising to revolutionize the fulfillment industry worldwide. The $1.5 billion deal at the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport came quick for Kentucky leaders who offered up $45 million in incentives. The air cargo hub is expected to create 2,700 jobs, and Boone County Judge Executive Gary Moore says this is only phase one. We are hopeful that their business plan will be successful and that that will grow to many more. Until it's built, Amazon will use DHL's facility. While the deal is great for Northern Kentucky, it is not for Wilmington, Ohio, where Amazon had been testing the air operation. Wilmington is the same place that lost DHL in 2009. For NPR News, I'm Ann Thompson in Cincinnati. Federal Reserve officials will wrap up their two-day meeting on interest rate policy this afternoon. No change in rates is expected amid the uncertainty about the economic effects of the Trump administration's policies. Stocks are continuing to trade mixed on Wall Street at this hour. The Dow is up six points, the Nasdaq up 14, the S&P down three. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Moo. Offering businesses of all sizes premium business cards, postcards, and stickers with options like gold foil, thick paper stock, and rounded corners. This is You by Moo. Learn more at Moo.com. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hello and welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, your host for the Wednesday version of Southern Remedy, which is, you know, all things considered, whatever you want to talk about, we certainly will take a, a, a call on that and do our best to answer it. Uh, you just heard about the new VA director. We were sitting here talking about um, taking care of veterans, and uh, I know we have a lot of veterans list, lit, listening, and I know that you guys know that I'm a veteran, so I was very interested to hear that, and it's always a challenge to deal with that system. So we can talk a little bit about that or anything you want to talk about. It's one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I am so fortunate to have a colleague, Dr. John Parks, who is an um, interventional cardiologist. That's the kind that uh, makes your valves pop open if you have aortic stenosis or puts a catheter in your heart and opens up your coronary artery if it's plugged and a whole bunch of other things that we consider these interventional cardiologists as magicians because they're able to put little wires and things into you to all kinds of strange places and fix stuff. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Thanks for having me, Dr. Rick. And, and you're uh, a magician, so we, we, you know, it's it's heart month, so we thought we'd have a magician. Unfortunately, <laughs> here in the in the South, we have a lot of heart disease and vascular disease, and so uh, we're we're fortunate to try and help take care of what are often complex problems that can be more slow growing problems, or they can be the acute thing in the middle of the night. And uh, happy to take some calls to try and address some of your. Uh, questions on those kind of heart and vascular topics. Right. So we'll we'll talk about heart or any other body part or problem. I have a terrible cold this week. If you want my suggestions about how to deal with it, uh, we'll give you those. As you can tell, I'm not dealing real well with it, and that's the state of the art. But chicken soup is wonderful. So uh, give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring and Doctor uh, uh, Doctor John is the one who also does those new heart procedures where you open up the aortic valve without having to operate on people. So I uh, hope we'll have some time to talk about that as well. So anything, give us a call, one eight seven seven mp ring and let's go to Aberdeen and Wayne. Hey, Wayne. Wayne, you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you for your call. Morning. Morning. Thank you. Uh, my GP does not do digital rectal prostate exams anymore and he also discounts the PSA test and uh, I'm 65 I urinate a little more frequently than I used to which I think is just age related but I don't know now how do you even have your prostate checked and it seems like to me they're telling me that you don't know something's wrong until something's terribly wrong okay well let me let me lead on that and then i'll we'll get dr parks in to help us the uh, rectum is a little distant from the heart but it's all connected yeah one of the things we frequently do is wonder whether we ought to do these exams on people with coronary artery disease but that's a whole nother story and i'm glad you brought that up because we got a lot of calls on prostate uh, last week and we didn't get to that particular one let me sort of summarize where we are on that we're terribly confused. Um, the The feeling is is that we have been operating on too many people with early prostate cancer that was not going to get large enough and that they were going to outlive uh, and die from something else and giving a lot of people impotence and chronic urinary problems. So we have swung from screening everyone with PSAs, uh, just about every male that we see, and doing digital rectals to doing nothing. And I think somewhere in the middle is the right answer. Uh, If you have a family history of prostate cancer, it's a little bit easier because it does tend to run in families. My grandfather had prostate cancer, and I I won't get out of the doctor's room without letting him do a digital rectal on me because I'm concerned about that. Uh, So I'll just tell you my particular uh, feeling about that and see what Dr. Park says. I do a digital rectal uh, on everyone uh, once a year that will let me do it. It's a male. It's an older male. And if they have a family history of prostate cancer, I will get a PSA. I'm not, I, I get one reference PSA on everybody just as a matter of reference and don't get them on a yearly basis. And that is pretty much non-scientifically based, but that's what I do. I, I tend to agree with you, Rick. Uh, you know, lots of PSAs get checked, and unfortunately, it's a lab test, and it doesn't always have clinical significance. And so 
Lots of guys have PSAs that are a little bit high, and lots of guys get prostate biopsies. And that's a very uncomfortable procedure, and as you mentioned, it, it can cause problems. And, and so we're trying to be a little bit more conservative, not having people undergo a bunch of unnecessary procedures, but looking for those higher-risk people that maybe have the family history of, of prostate cancer that we should be more aggressive. They should be having rectal exams. They should maybe be having a PSA checked every once in a while. And, you know, it's always okay to get a, a second opinion and, and to get somebody else's take on things. Last thing on that one, Wayne, <clears throat> if you're having urinary symptoms, uh, that means your prostate's enlarged. Uh-huh. And your, your prostate is enlarged either, usually. It's either enlarged because it's benign prostatic hypertrophy or it's prostate cancer, okay? So okay. anybody that has symptoms... Uh, difficulty urinating, uh, dribbling, uh, so forth, needs to have a digital rectal and a PSA, at least as a reference point, to make sure things are okay before you get Flomax and everything else. Okay. So my my recommendation is, uh, did he just tell you straight up he wasn't going to do it? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Huh. Well, does he have a partner? <laughs> Maybe I need to see a urologist. Well, that that would be okay. You got some reason to see a urologist because you're having some urinary problems, and yeah. that's a good workaround. Okay. Thank but you for from your what call. I read, nearly every male, if they live long enough, will have prostate enlargement. Is that true? Every male, if they live long enough, will have prostate cancer. Oh, okay. That's I right. mean, it's. Uh, I'm sorry. That's you know the same way with breast cancer i mean women have the breast problem we got the prostate problem but uh, okay. but you know the the proportion of those cancers that if you checked every 90 year old there're not a lot of them that progress to you know cancers that kill people but there can be those middle-aged guys who who do get metastatic prostate cancer, and, and uh, that's something that we should be aggressive about obviously if it's you it's a hundred percent that's all I can say. All right, well, thank you for your call, Wayne, and that was Thanks, a Wayne. really, really good question. Let's go to Roland, who's on the road, on the road in my native state, Alabama. Hey, Roland. Uh, hi. Uh, I don't have a question, but comment. Since you're dealing with hearts, yeah. uh, I wanted to, I'm a, I'm a heart transplant recipient, and I wanted to urge everybody who's listening to consider being an organ donor. Uh, if you donate your organs, there is never any cost to the family, and you can help as many as seven people. I, I have a, uh, a bumper sticker that says, please don't take your or- organs to heaven because heaven knows we need them here. Right. You couldn't, couldn't give a better, uh, better point of view than that. Uh, thank you very much for doing that. Thank you know, we have a, we have a uh, heart transplant program excuse me, because i got a cold, uh, here at UMC that is is really making a big difference. It is, and, and that's such a great point, Roland. Uh, and and this, is, this is a gift that can, you know, really change someone's life who is dealing with end-stage heart failure. Uh, and there's just a, a huge number of people here in the South that have congestive heart failure. And uh, we're trying to come up with other options other than transplant, but uh, they just don't always have the same benefits. And, and, 
You, and people do well with right. them. People do well with them ride if, bicycles. if we get them early. Yeah, ride um, bicycles and all kinds of stuff after they get a transplant. 10, 15 years of, of additional life is what we're expecting out of a transplant. Yeah. And uh, we've seen many, many more than that. And the devices just keep coming, 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 coming. You have these new devices that, and new drugs, actually, that are, are pretty amazing. That's right. So there are, there are newer drugs out that are helping people live longer with congestive heart failure, and there are also implantable heart pumps that don't fix the heart failure, but they help the heart compensate by increasing circulation and flow. And, and while that's uh, its own set of things that have to be dealt with, it's a big procedure, but it can be a life-saving procedure. All right. Thank you for your call, Roland. Thanks, we Roland. have open lines right here <clears throat> at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send us an email at Southern Remedy at mpbonline.org. I'm Dr. Rick here with Dr. John and we are talking about um, anything you want to talk to talk about today. And uh, since John, Dr. John is a cardiologist, an interventional cardiologist, we're also trying to make the point that this is Heart Month and Friday is Go Red for Women. Let's go to Hazel Hurst and Robert. Hey, Robert. Hi. What's happening in Hazelhurst? Good morning. A uh, little bit of history on me. I'm a 51-year-old Caucasian male. Uh, I, I guess I'm obese. According to BMI, I'm obese. I have a umbilical hernia that is protruding and causes somewhat severe pain from time to time. Um, also, I've checked my blood pressure in the last couple of weeks, and it's been in like the 160 over 120 range. Not good. My, my question is, I, I haven't been to the doctor in 15 years. I scheduled my first appointment next Tuesday morning for a complete checkup. What do I need to make sure I get accomplished in that? So you raise up a, a number of great points that we need to touch on. So, uh, you know, having a, a increased weight is something that we deal with a lot here in the South, and hypertension always goes with it. And and it's so important to have a good internist to help start to sort out these issues and, and start working on them. Uh, these are things that are potentially chronic issues, and so they don't go away overnight. But doing things to try and decrease your weight and control your blood pressure will make you live longer and feel better. So uh, I think the, the big important things are is talking about what are some lifestyle things that you could do that are going to affect all of those things. And then, you know, do you need to talk about medications to get your blood pressure better? And once those things get tuned up, if you lost some weight, your hernia might be a little bit less uncomfortable or you might be more apt to talk with a surgeon and say what are the pros and cons about having a hernia repaired. And Rowan, one of the good good bits of news is because none of us can lose weight and keep it off very well once we get it on. Uh, that's just the biology of who we are. Is that a 10% drop in weight can have terrific effects. So even though you're overweight, it can help normalize your blood sugar, which probably is going to be found to be a little bit high help your blood pressure management somewhat, and uh, also help your cholesterol. So one of the other things you need to make sure that your doctor does, in addition to getting your blood pressure, uh, checking your BMI again, uh, is to check your cholesterol, and and in particular to look for how much bad cholesterol you have. That's right. So uh, cholesterol and, and elevated blood sugars go hand in hand with the conditions that you mentioned. And all those things combined are just 
prime factors to contribute to heart disease. And if we even just improve those a little bit, that can decrease your risk of heart disease, strokes, and having big troubles later on in life. So let's wrap this up, Robert. If you've got a pencil, here's what you your doctor should be getting on you. Okay. He or she should be getting a CBC, a complete blood count, okay. a CMP, which is a chemical profile, a TSH, which is a thyroid test, a set of lipids, uh, a, a urinalysis, and how old are you? 51. And probably, and take a good history to see if you need a digital rectal exam, uh, and probably um, uh, refer you to an ophthalmologist because you're old enough now that you're going to need your uh, eyes checked regularly. So that's just the basics. Is that helpful? Okay. Yes, very much. Thank All you right. So much. Thank you very much. Thanks Let's go much. to Sheila and Jackson. Hey, Sheila. Sh- is it Sheila or Shella? This is Sheila. Hey. Hi, Sheila. Hello. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, this is heart-related. Uh, my mother passed away a little over a year ago, and she was 83. And uh, we found out that she had been put on Eliquis uh, for AFib, and she... Uh, so, you know, she had some other issues, but um, apparently she died from a stroke. So don't know that the eloquence really helped her that much. And I'm wondering if why, you know, with these blood thinner medications like that, why aspirin just won't, won't work? Great question, Sheila. And I'm so sorry to hear about your mom. Uh, so atrial fibrillation or AFib is the most common heart rhythm problem that we see. And it's just a staggering number of people that have this. And sometimes it can have symptoms and sometimes it can be silent. What is it? So this is an abnormal heart rhythm where the electrical system uh, in the top part of the heart is overacting. And so the top chambers of the heart are almost quivering because there are such chaotic electrical signals in the top part of the heart. And because the top part of the heart is quivering, little blood clots can form in the nooks and crannies of the heart. Hmm. We have done lots of research because this is a, a very common problem, and we found that certain risk factors make people more apt to have those blood clots form in their heart. So those are things like age, being a woman, having other vascular problems like hypertension or having diabetes. So those are all risk factors for developing blood clots in the heart. And unfortunately, a large number of these blood clots go to the brain and cause a stroke. And and those are often devastating strokes. And so it's a, it's a real problem that uh, we see a lot in older patients. And just like you said, it's an everyday thing. Just lots of people are getting this. They say something like 2 million people uh, around the U.S. have atrial fib. Um, There are different treatments for the problem itself, for the atrial fib. Sometimes we try and get people back into a normal heart rhythm. Sometimes that's difficult, and we try and just control how fast the atrial fib is going. So there's the treatment of the rhythm problem itself, and then there's the problem of the blood clots. And as you mentioned, there used to be some thought that aspirin could be a treatment for that, but unfortunately it didn't really change the rates of strokes that people were having. So we've moved to blood thinners like Coumadin and Eliquis. And while those are generally safe drugs, 
if they're used appropriately, they can have adverse effects like bleeding. And particularly if people have falls, they can be dangerous. And, and so in, in an 83-year-old person, we have to be very careful and, and weighs the pros and the cons. So um, she had a her, her mom had a stroke, and we're not sure whether it was a clot flipped up from her uh, atrium or it was a bleed uh, from the anticoagulant or just spontaneous. And uh, so what is the uh, what is the uh, benefit of being anticoagulated if you have an atrial if you have atrial fibrillation? How high did, how much does it drop your risk for getting one of those emboli to your brain? So if if we were to talk about an 83 year old woman, her risk of stroke is probably somewhere in the five to 10 percent range per year. So that means every year she's got that same 5 to 10% risk. And that's not an insignificant number no. because these are often devastating strokes. And uh, with blood thinners like Coumadin or the Eliquis, we can usually decrease that risk of blood clot related strokes in half. So it's not a perfect fix, but those blood thinners are generally better than aspirin. And if they're used safely, the risk of bleeding is is low. Sheila, thank you so much for your call. And uh, again, we're sorry about your mom. Uh, but that, those are the numbers, and hopefully that helps a little bit. Let's go to Sarah and Jackson. Hey, Sarah. Sarah, you're with us. I'm here. Thanks for your call. Good morning. Hi. Um, my mother is 90 years old, and she lives in Tombstone. And I drive over and take care of her. And she goes to a cardiologist in Meridian. And they told her last year that her valve was getting bad. I know there's three or four valves. And they said it was the biggest one. And they said that she was going to have to have an open heart surgery for her valve to get it fixed. And I know in Jackson they do a special procedure. And I didn't know what makes one person need an open heart and what person doesn't. Guess what, Sarah? You got the doctor who does them sitting here. Well, that is great. This is the Taver doctor. Hi, Sarah. Hi. So this is a, a hugely important point, and, and it's important because our population is, is growing older, uh, and, and the elderly population is just exploding. And if we all live to be 125, a lot of us would have this problem called aortic stenosis, and that's almost certainly what your mom has. That's it. So the, one of the main valves that regulates blood flow in the heart it can get calcified and thickened as we age, and it doesn't open as well. And that can lead to problems like shortness of breath, chest pain, congestive heart failure, and pe people will eventually die of this valve problem if it's left untreated. So over the, the long period, we used cardiac surgery to open up the heart, cut out that valve, sew a new valve in, and put everything back together. But that's a big operation for a 65-year-old, and a lot of 90-year-olds just don't get treated. So 10 years ago, they were told, we'll give you some medicine to try and help you feel better, but there are no treatment options. Right. And her, her legs swell real bad, and they've been giving her medicine for that. Ooh. Is that the same? It's probably the same, and that's probably the signs of congestive heart failure. And, oh. and unfortunately, those medicines can help control some of the symptoms, but they do not change the valve, and they do not pay, make people live longer. Okay? okay? So it's a mechanical problem, needs a mechanical fix. 
there's a new valve that's a valve that can be inserted often through the leg artery or sometimes through a small incision in the chest that's an expandable valve. And rather than cutting out the old valve with open heart surgery, we can put a new expandable valve inside of that disease valve and blow it open with a balloon, and it pushes the old valve out of the way with this expandable valve that opens and closes normally. It's changed people's lives that are in their 80s and 90s and are dealing with this problem. And we've done it on people that are in their 60s. We've done it on people in their 90s. She needs to, y'all need to talk about this. And, and there, are, there are several places in the Jackson area that do it. The university is one of them. Baptist Hospital is another one. And St. Dominic's also does them as well. Um, but nobody in Meridian. Nobody in Meridian currently, but we work with those cardiologists frequently. And uh, I'd be happy to give you our, our phone number and we can I can see her in clinic and, and we would talk about, is this really the right diagnosis? What are all of our treatment options? Is, is TAVR something that, that would be a treatment option for her and would it make her feel better? Okay. What, what so the best thing TAVR? to... What is that? So TAVR stands for transcatheter aortic valve replacement. So aortic valve replacement done through a catheter, done often through a hole in the leg, kind of like we do a heart cath, but a much bigger tube. It's often done under low anesthesia, and patients tend to go home 48 hours after their procedure. So if you want to know more about that, Sarah, just send us an email at southernremedy.mpbonline.org. And we'll send you some additional information. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for your Good call. Luck, we Thanks appreciate so much. it. Thank you. We have open lines at one eight seven seven MPB ring, one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or we'll take your email at southernremedy at mpbonline dot org. This is a Doc in the Box show, answering any questions you have on medical issues with our special guest, Dr. John Park, who is a Cardio, uh, cardiacs, uh, interventional cardiologist. But we'll take any call right after this break. for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. MPB's at issue has the 2017 legislative session covered from all angles. You'll hear each week from Mississippi's most influential elected leaders at the state capitol. MPB political analysts Republican Austin Barber and Democrat Brandon Jones provide insight on the critical issues facing the state and how these issues impact you. Join host Wilson Stribling for Mississippi's only statewide television news program at issue Fridays at 730 p.m. on MPB TV. 
To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hello and welcome back to another visit with uh, your doctor's own call. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Rick. And yes, I do have a terrible cold, and I know who gave it to me, and I won't forgive him. Uh, and it was a little baby. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm here with Dr. John Park, who is a uh, interventional cardiologist, and this is Go Red Women. And we're taking all your calls, and we're uh, on any topic. So let's go to uh, Wayne T. Wayne on the road with a gallbladder issue. Hey, hey, is it Wayne? Yeah. Heidi. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning. You're on the air. Okay, I would like to speak with the doctor in regards to, uh, I've been diagnosed as having a, a gallbladder stoned or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. I had a terrible, terrible incident with that. It, it, the first one I had, I thought I was having a heart attack. And it was just so excruciating, the pain was. Right. And so I went to my doc right away, and uh, he said, well, there's indication that you might have gallstones, and it might necessitate taking your gallbladder out. Now, I'm thinking, well, you know, that's not too bad because I could, obviously you can get by without the gallbladder because I got by without my tonsils, so it's not everything that i got to have. <laughs> and at 85 years old, it, it's beginning to replace different parts of my body. Yeah. The, the question I got is how am I to know the difference between a gallbladder attack and a heart attack. I'm telling you, it's just, it, it looks like they're the same to me. Good question. Good question. And I think that, you know, you did the right thing, which is to get checked out. If if you have bad symptoms, you need to go to see your doctor or go to the emergency room if it's urgent to get this checked out. Because in an 85-year-old, it could be gallstones, it could be your heart, it could be a lot of things. So the right thing to do is to get checked out. And uh, they can do things like an EKG and do an ultrasound of your gallbladder and blood tests to, to look at different things to so try let's and take sort these, it out. Let's take these one at a time because people are always going to the emergency room and they never know what to expect. And so the approach is a little bit different with women than men. There's a little bit more history taken with women because their symptoms are different. You can tell us about that. And then there are specific tests that you do to rule out a heart attack and specific things you look at to deal with gallbladder, right? So what do you do to rule out a heart attack? So one of the first things that you should do when when somebody walks into the ER and they're having discomfort in their chest is to get an EKG, and that can really decide right then if it's a major heart attack and is a is a easy test to do, a quick test to do. And uh, after that, it's doing blood tests, which can look for stress on the heart. When the heart is stressed, it releases these enzymes in the bloodstream that we can easily look at and see if there's signs of stress or damage to the heart. So those are some of the early things that we can do. But, uh, you know, you're right. There are often 
confusing symptoms. What we worry about is discomfort that's in the chest. Maybe it goes up to your neck. Maybe it goes to your left arm. You're probably short of breath. If it's a heart condition, you might even feel sick on your stomach or sweat. And those are some of the classic symptoms that we think about for heart disease or a heart attack. But as Rick was mentioning, they can be different than that. It's not the crushing elephant on your chest for everybody. Some of that is more uh, in men. Women can sometimes have different symptoms, which could be burning in their chest or burning radiating to around their shoulder, or they are short of breath is their main symptom. Or faint. Or they can have passing out spells, and and that can be a a rare cause of uh, a rare sign of a heart attack. But if you have worrisome symptoms, uh, an ER doctor is is somebody that can sort it out with, hopefully within a, a pretty short amount of time. And the funny thing about it, <clears throat> I've heard you talk about is you can you can do all those tests and the person's still having a heart attack and you miss it. So a lot of times you will follow that up with a stress test of some sort just to make sure. Is that right? So we can generally tell if there's been much damage to the heart based off blood tests and other diagnostic tests that we can do in the hospital. A lot of times we have to admit people to watch them overnight to see if there's any signs of trouble or if things change. But you should have close follow-up with a primary care doctor or provider or a cardiologist. And if you continue to have symptoms that are concerning, sometimes we'll do a stress test either put you on a treadmill or do a chemical stress test looking for signs of stress on the heart. And we're trying to see if this is a heart-related condition. The the test or procedure that truly identifies that is a heart catheterization or a heart cath, but that's an invasive test or procedure. And so that's not the first thing that we jump to. Okay. And, and so that that is the heart part. There are specific indications for taking your gallbladder out, and we don't have time to go through all of those, but uh, it has to do with a combination of what's going on in the ultrasound or other gallbladder imaging tests that you have, whether or not you have diabetes or other problems, and almost all of those are done endoscopically now. They're not done with open procedures. I had my gallbladder out, and we had a party at our house that night, and I attended. So uh, things have changed. I didn't drink anything, but I attended. Uh, so so uh, it's not as bad as you think. If you want more information about that part of it, please send me an email. I've got a list of things that I will send you at southernremedy at mpbonline.org. Thank you, Wayne, so much. Let's go to George in George County. George, are you the George of George County? Yeah, I'm the uh, governor over here. Okay, good. Well, I I would think that uh, the, know the more governors uh, we have, uh, I won't go there. Uh, what's your question? All right, Dr. Rick, I know you're a comedian, and I have a serious question. But uh, I'm using the alias name today. Okay. I don't be tracked down by anybody. I understand. But uh, basketball players dribble all the time. Mm-hmm. But this is a serious question. Uh, what a person at home... Is there a uh, average leaders that would be released before you dribble? Or what do y'all call and dribble? There's people all over the country want to know exactly the terminology and how do you measure a dribble. And okay, you, that's, that, is, that is a very valid and important question. You measure, measure the leaders when you get up in the morning like, right? see what it is. Okay, so the reason I use that term dribble 
is, uh, and other doctors do as well, is it is a sign that the uh, urinary bladder is not completely emptying when you urinate as a male. And uh, it is not uncommon for anyone to dribble a little bit. That's why you shake your penis when you finish urinating to get the dribble off. But the dribble I'm talking about that's associated with prostate problems and other problems in the urinary tract is when you shake yourself off, you zip up your pants, and then you have urine running down your pants leg. Or if you start having urine, your urine, you can't wait to get to the bathroom and you urinate in your pants. Those are the kinds of dribbling that are alarm signs that mean you really got something broken and it needs to be fixed. So that's what I'm talking about when we talk about prostate disease and other urinary problems with dribbling. It's very, very common in older men, and it's, it's embarrassing, but the medicines can make a tremendous difference in stopping it. So that's why I keep talking about it, and well, we appreciate your call. Dr. Rick. Yes, sir. Yeah, listen, this is a quick question. Like, you get up in the morning, you want to measure how much volume you come out. What would be an average person for a small human to uh, uh, fill up into uh, some measurable loss? Uh, I don't think anybody has ever ever calculated that. The main thing that you want to, to make sure when you get up is that if your urine is very dark in the morning, dark yellow, you know, whether it's a little bit or a lot, um, is that you drink fluids because if it's concentrated, that means you're dehydrated. Most of the time in the South, your urine needs to be a light color, not a dark color. Yeah. Uh, the the volume that you put out is directly proportioned to the volume you put in. So if you've had a lot of fluids during the day or if you have fluids stored somewhere, that's all absorbed, and it's all peed out first thing in the morning. So I can't give you the answer you want. It's a good question, but there's no data on that. And it, if we did have it, it would be a range, of, a huge range. Okay? That's, that's great. Thank you, Dr. Rick. And we, we'd like to, like to hear from you. Thank you for your call. Let's go to Charlie in Alabama. Hey, Charlie. Yeah. Sorry to keep you waiting. What's going on? Oh, <clears throat> that's okay. Uh I just have a really simple question. Um, I, uh, I'm 61 years old, a white male, and I swim four miles a week. And I have for the past 15 or 20 years. You're beating all of us. And I haven't been. Last time I went to the doctor, I had a kidney stone 20 years ago. But I feel great all the time. I mean, all the time. I guess people say your endorphins are up on the moon or something. I don't know what it is. But... <laughs> But anyway, um, I take an aspirin a day, and I have no clue when I do that. I think my dad told me to a long time ago. Do I really need to do that? I mean, does it benefit me, or can I stop? Or That's, a great, mean, that's I, another good question. Great question. Do you have any family history of heart trouble? Not that I know of. I mean, I, I don't know of any. But, I, um, I mean, I don't dribble. I just I, mean, I feel great. I just don't know if I need to take my aspirin. Right? And I don't. I don't think I have any history of heart trouble, but I'm not 100% sure. So we generally recommend aspirin for somebody like you if they have risk factors for heart disease. That might be their blood pressure is a little bit high, their cholesterol is not perfect, they've had a family history of heart disease, they smoke. So aspirin is used to try and decrease your risk of a heart attack or a stroke. 
We've also seen in a smaller study that aspirin slightly decreased the risk of colon cancer. Smaller study, so maybe the benefit's not huge, but there was a small decrease in the risk of colon cancer. So those are some of the pros of being on a low-dose or 81-milligram aspirin a day, baby aspirin a day. What are some of the cons? Why wouldn't you want to take an aspirin? Well, if you've had any bleeding trouble or a family history of bleeding trouble or prone to have GI issues, an aspirin might let you have more trouble with bleeding from a stomach ulcer or something like that. And you have sinned, and I'm going to pray for you because you hadn't seen a doctor in 20 years. You oh, need it's your probably been over 20 years. I'm well, yeah, that's like I say, I'm at, uh, adding an extra prayer bead for you uh, because you need to have your cholesterol checked and your blood pressure checked and your prostate checked. So please go do that. But uh, you've heard the mantra on aspirin. It can be used either as primary prevention in people who are at high risk or everybody who has had a heart attack gets put on it, right? That's right. So it decreases your risk of a heart attack or stroke by half. So it's one of the most powerful medicines that we have. All right. Thank you, Charlie. We appreciate your call. Let's go to Biloxi and Jim. Hey, Jim. Jim. Jim, I'm yelling, I'm yelling toward Biloxi. I turned south and called your name. Okay. Okay, this is, this is Jim. Uh, I'm uh, 68 years old. I take uh, cholesterol medication. I take aspirin a day. My blood pressure is, sits around 140, 150. Uh, you know, we're getting close here. I do not want to uh, take blood pressure medication. Um, I know everybody says uh, lose weight and um, exercise more. Right. Uh, I just walked El Camino to Santiago, 550 miles across the north of Spain. I lost eight pounds. Well, uh, what else can one do to lower blood pressure? Because you see all of these things, you know, this, that, and the other. Uh, what's What's real? Okay, Jim, we hear this all the time. What can I do other than take blood pressure medicine? I don't understand why we keep hearing that uh, because we have cheap, effective blood pressure medicines now with that we know what they're going to do. And people want to take all kinds of herbs and other things. But your question is still, well, a good one because even if you're on medicine and you get your blood pressure regulated, there are other lifestyle changes that need to be made. Right. This is something that a lot of people have trouble with. And even a blood pressure of 140 or 150, that increases your risk of heart and vascular complications, so heart attack, stroke. And we don't worry about the next year or two, but it's a long-term thing. So all the time you're dealing with that high blood pressure. So the lifestyle things, limiting your sodium, limiting your alcohol intake, exercising and trying to maintain a healthy weight those are some of the lifestyle things that you can do but to dr rick's point uh if if your blood pressure is not to to a good number then those lifestyle things aren't working and the next step would be medications and uh, the medications are very safe they're affordable we use them in thousands and thousands of patients and we can find one that would work for you and uh, it's it's something that you should address with your doctor. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jim. We appreciate your call. Let's go to Columbus and Charles. Hey, Charles. Charles, you with us? Hello. Hey, Charles. You're hey, on good morning, the Charles. air. We're glad to have you with us. Okay. Um, 
I was listening earlier. You were talking about uh, aortic stenosis. Yes, sir. Uh, I've been uh, diagnosed with uh, severe aortic stenosis, and I'm meeting with the the surgeon this afternoon for the first time to schedule the surgery. And I'm, uh, I guess I'm scared. Of course. How old are you, Charles? Sixty-eight. And do you have many of the medical problems? I have high blood pressure. Okay. So as we talked about earlier, there are different treatment options for severe aortic stenosis. And some of those include traditional open heart surgery, where we actually open the heart, take out the valve, put a new valve in and put everything together. Or there are less invasive options where we try and go through your leg artery to put an expandable valve and take the place of that disease valve. This is a yeah, newer. I heard that earlier, and that, that they're talking about uh, open heart surgery. Open heart surgery, right? And and, and the reason valve. that they're talking about that is because the expandable valve is a newer technology. So it was invented in 2002 in France. It has been more popular in Europe since 2007, but it's really only been in the United States for the last five years. So we have data out to about five years that says that this is a good procedure. And we think that it will last just as long as surgery in a select patient group. We have so far used this newer technology in people that aren't great candidates for traditional open heart surgery. So we've we've tried to see do those patients do just as well as traditional surgery, and it looks like they do. So you've disadvantaged yourself in putting it in people who are super sick to see if it works, and it works. Is that what you're saying? Correct, and it does better than surgery in people that are sick. Now, that that's somebody like an 85-year-old person who has maybe had a previous stroke. That's the kind of person that we would worry about having open-heart surgery. Generally, somebody that's in their 60s and they're healthy, they don't have many medical problems, we know that they have a good chance of getting through traditional open-heart surgery safely and have a good outcome, and we know the outcomes of surgery in thousands and thousands and thousands of patients for 10, 12, 15 years. So surgery's been around for a long time. We know it works, but it is a big surgery. Uh, well, but I found out by going for my annual checkup, and I didn't. I had. I just. I had shortness of breath, and he's been monitoring. This would be my fourth time to go to the cardiologist. But uh, the other times there was no problem, or they something they might want to monitor if I had to come back. But I had no clue until my my primary care doctor uh, heard a murmur. Well, he's heard it over the years. That's why he keeps sending me to the cardiologist. <laughs> I've treadmill and all the. Well, here here's the good news: the outcomes are good with either, okay. and the outcomes are bad with not doing anything. Oh, I mean, real, real bad, like dying. Worse than so cancer. So you got to do one of the two, and use your brain. You obviously have a good one to figure out what is best for you. Bring up the discussion of the uh, uh, other, this TAVR procedure with your a surgeon and let him or her explain to you why he recommends or him or her recommends whatever they're doing. Okay, now what is the other procedure called? TAVR, T-A-V. T-A-V-R. T-A-V-R. That's the one where they stick a, um, a oh. line up in your leg and... and Go through the leg artery with an uh, expandable valve. Because they went through my arm when they did the calf. Yeah. Yeah. There was no no clogged veins and 
Right. Okay, well, we're, we'll add you to the uh, long prayer list we're starting this morning. Talk about it with your surgeon, and if you need to get a second opinion, that's okay, too. Absolutely. Thank you for your call. Let's go to Brookhaven and Miss Charlie. Hey, Miss Charlie. Hi, how are y'all? We're good. We appreciate your call. Good morning. Good morning. Um, just real quick, my ex-husband had high blood pressure and recently passed away in August because oh, he refused goodness. to take his medication. Mm. He had a massive stroke in front of our six-year-old son. Oh, so oh my gosh. Those people need to take care of themselves. Yep. Um, which has prompted me to take better care of myself. I found out my cholesterol's a little high, and I wanted to know your opinion on olive oil and reducing your cholesterol. Great question. So as we were talking about with taking care of high blood pressure, some of those same things apply to taking care of high cholesterol. So it depends on your risk factors and it depends on how bad the levels are. So uh, there are certain lifestyle things that you can do to try and lower your cholesterol. And those are eating things like good fats, like fish that's not fried, avocado, olive oil, and another great thing is exercising. Exercising reduces your cholesterol levels. And we want to control those cholesterol levels because cholesterol is what makes buildup in our arteries and causes heart attacks and strokes for the vast majority of people. And if we can lower that cholesterol and manage your risk, you'll do better in the long term for your kids. Now, not all cholesterol problems are related to bad behavior on your part. A, a number of them are genetic. And uh, so we don't wait to see if you can lose weight or exercise to drop your bad cholesterol into the normal levels with a statin or other drug. Because in the meantime, it's accumulating in your blood vessels. So if you want to do those life child life child if you want to change those things, (laughs) uh, uh, do it. And you'll be better for lots of other reasons. But if your if your HDL is poor. Uh, your good cholesterol, or your bad cholesterol is high, LDL, you need to have that fixed now, and you need to have the cholesterol checked in your son because of the family history of metabolic syndrome, which is includes high blood pressure. We're now checking them in just about all kids that have any risk. In fact, all of my grandkids are getting them, even if they don't have any risk, because we know from a study that was done in Korean uh, military uh, casualties that cholesterol starts accumulating in the teenage years in large amounts. So please have that checked, and thank you so much for your call. We're sorry for your loss. Thank Let, you. Let's go to Robin Jackson. Hey, Rob. Rob, it's your turn. Steamboat's going up and down. Hey, Rob, you're on the air. Hello. hello? Hey, it's Good your morning. turn on Southern Remedy. Yes. Uh, you're not on a steamboat anymore. It's your turn. Oh, I'm so sorry. I am a. I was just taking a cruise down over the Mississippi River in Natchez. Anyway, you lucky dog, you. You lucky, lucky dog. Your, this is your neighbor, Bob, down oh. three doors down. Okay. What's Uh-oh. going on? And I have been a cardi- cardiologist dream child. I drink, smoke, and don't exercise, and I'm just beginning to realize that I need to cigars. And I'm just getting ready to start an exercise program. And I was wondering if there's 
anything I should do as far as a physical, a checkup, or anything since I haven't been a good boy on my exercise. Bless you. Bless you, my son. We've the, got the, the guy that can tell is, you. Yeah, the first step of re- recognizing the problem. So it, it's a good idea for you to get checked out by your internist prior to getting involved in an exercise program, particularly if you're going to do anything strenuous at the gym. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to wait a month to go see your GP. What you should start doing is taking a walk around the block. You just got to start somewhere. You don't have to try and run five miles. But even if you can walk four to five times a week, that's enough to decrease your risk of heart problems. So we all say that we're busy. I have started that. My wife is an avid walker, and she is dragging me by the nose to walk with her. (laughs) It has been uh, exciting. But I do feel a little better when I'm not quite as hungry. I'm probably 40 pounds overweight, which is part of this uh, newfound uh, health uh, that could maybe help me live a few years longer. But we don't have a history of cholesterol. My cholesterol has never been a problem. Blood pressure is slightly elevated, but with uh, proper diet and exercise, I think that I was just concerned if I get out there and do too much. Uh, it might have a, it might have a drastic effect on my life. Listen, listen to your body. So uh, you can go out there and take a, a light walk around the block, and if you're having shortness of breath or fatigue or lightheaded or chest discomfort, then you need to stop and sit down and take a break for five minutes. And you need to really work on the smoking. Any smoking, the nicotine that clamps down your blood vessels, increases your risk of a heart attack and stroke. Getting rid of the cigarettes or any nicotine is the most powerful thing that you can do for your heart. And we'll talk about it when I see you walking around the block, okay? Absolutely. All right. He's he's got it, but thank you very much. See you soon. I enjoyed that information on the aspirin. We've been told that. And uh, y'all explained it in a a very elementary way that we can uh, benefit from Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Let's go to Oxford and Anna. Hey, Anna. Hi. uh, How are you? We're good good now that you called. What's going on? Well, um, I have arthritis, and um, I take Celebrex, or the generic version. And you mentioned Voltaren. It just so happens that uh, in uh, Christmas 2015... I had um, I slipped in an elevator, and I had a very nasty sprain, and I thought it was broken, but it wasn't. It was a sprain, but it still hurts. And um, I'm wondering if indeed that's become arthritic. Uh, it's the same leg as uh, I, when I was a kid of seven years old, I had a green stick fracture on the ankle. Right. And. Um, can I use Voltaren as well as using Celebrex, which I use for my hands? Okay, so Celebrex, uh, frequently the dose of Celebrex that you get on the first try is controlled by your insurance company, and you don't get the full dose. So <clears throat> check with your doctor and make sure you're on the full dose before you start adding stuff on. Celebrex has recently been shown uh, to be uh, a, a safe a non-steroidal. You need to get an x-ray of that joint to see if there's a problem down there. That's about the only way you can determine what's going on, and I, I would do it sooner than later. Thank you so much for listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio, and a special thanks to Dr. John Parks, our special guest, 
who is an interventional cardiologist. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Catch the replay of today's show this Sunday at 6, p- 6 a.m. And join us next Wednesday at 11 for the original Southern Remedy, where the doctors are always in. Stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now is next on Southern Remedy. Thanks so much for having us. 